So my name is Stephanie Hensley, and um, I do attend here uh, at the calling, and um, I'll kind of get a, go into a little bit of how I landed here, but uh, Brady's right. I'm going to share with you this morning um, a story, and I'm going to correct one thing, and it's not my story. The story that I'm going to share with you this morning is God's story that he has allowed me the privilege to live out, and uh, because all of the glory needs to go to him. And I realized this morning that there are a lot of moms here that um, are not feeling 100%. You've got a lot of issues. You've got a lot of things going on in your own lives. Um, and I can sympathize with that. And uh, hopefully that I, I pray very hard this morning that something will resonate and something will tug at your heart and at your spirit um, that will allow you to know that you're not alone that I probably will shock you a little bit with some of what I'm going to reveal um, about myself and about, I'm going to be very vulnerable, I'll be honest, this morning. And um, one of the first things the girls asked me this morning on the way here was, Mom, what are you going to say? You know, that's a big curious question. What are you going to say? And so the first thing I answered back was, I'm going to talk all about you. <laughs> so, and of course they were like, well, we're okay with that. I'm like, mm-hmm, we'll see if you are, right? Um, so, kind of going off of what is it that moms say that's kind of funny. Um, one of the things that we just watched last weekend when we took my mother-in-law out for her birthday um, is a Tim Hawkins video, if any of you have seen him on YouTube. Very funny Christian comedian, and he was talking about some of the things that moms have a tendency to say when they're parenting, and uh, there was a video that Haley had run across, my youngest, and um, she said, Mom, this is completely you. And she's right, because we just doubled over laughing. But it was when your kids are hurt or they're not feeling well, and the first thing that you say, I'm very guilty of this, well, go sit on the pot, <laughs> you know? And uh, so this morning, I'm not going to tell you to go do that, but I am hopefully going to encourage you um, to worship the Lord in a different way that maybe you're not doing today and seeking him in a different manner. So um, first thing is I want to just kind of start off and pray um, just quickly. Dear precious Heavenly Father, I just ask that you just be with us this morning. Be with us moms, be with the dads, be with the men and women here gathered together that um, they can hear your story lived out through my life as you have allowed me. You've orchestrated this. You have completely woven this whole story together. And I give you complete credit and complete glory. And I will stand here and I will shout and sing and dance in your presence because of what you've allowed me to live through. And I praise you for that. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. So first off, the first thing I'm going to ask you, there's a beautiful song um, that I listen to a lot when I'm going to work in the morning um, by Nicole Nordeman called Legacy. And it challenges to think about what is your legacy. So one thing that I want all of you moms to think about this morning is what legacy are you leaving for your children? Because of all of us, we have a story that starts from the time of childhood. And it's, it's living out the legacy that we intend to live for our children, for our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. So I want you to be thinking about that this morning and throughout the day-to-day. -day, go on a walk, whatever it is, and think about this. What is your legacy? What do you want them to remember about you when they lay you down one day? And so the one thing that I want more than anything for my children to be able to say, my grandchildren to be able to say, is I'm a woman that seeks after God's own heart. That's absolutely my number one quest in life. And I wasn't always that on fire, but I have become that on fire. 
and I am not ashamed of it. I'm not, I'm not af- afraid to admit that in any way. And the reason for that is because of what God has pulled me from. And so I know him at a deep personal level that I know a lot of people don't. And my, in- my intention this morning is really to get you to a point that I'm encouraging you to go there with him, to seek after him that way. Because I'm telling you, he's real, he's alive, he is God, and he is good. So I'm going to start, and I'm going to challenge all of you to pull out your Bibles this morning. First off, hopefully you brought a Bible with you. If not, please lean over the shoulder of someone. I'm going to be reading from, it's my very torn, very worn Bible that I've used um, over and over again, but it's the New Century version. It's my favorite version of the Bible um, because it's a very easy read. But we're going to start off with a very familiar passage, and um, it's Proverbs 31. So if you'll turn to Proverbs 31, we're going to start with verse 10, and I'm going to have to get my readers on, I have a feeling. So, it is hard to find a good wife because she is worth more than rubies. Her husband trusts her completely. With her, he has everything he needs. She does him good and not harm for as long as she lives. She looks for wool and flax and likes to work with her hands. She is like a trader's ship bringing food from afar. She gets up while it's still dark and prepares food for her family, and she feeds her servant girls. She inspects a field and buys it. With money she has earned, she plants a vineyard. She does her work with energy, and her arms are strong. This is a very busy woman, I'm telling you. She knows that what she makes is good, and her lamp burns into the night. She makes thread with her hands and weaves her own cloth. She welcomes the poor and helps the needy. She does not worry about her family when it snows because they have fine clothes to keep them warm. She makes coverings for herself and her clothes are made of linen and other expensive material. Her husband is known in the city meetings where he makes decisions as one of the leaders of the land. She makes linen clothes and sells them, provides belts to the merchants. She is strong and respected by the people. She looks forward to the future with joy. She speaks wise words and teaches others to be kind. She watches over her family, never wastes her time. Her children, children speak well of her. Her husband also praises her, saying, There are many fine women, but you are better than them all. Charm can fool you and beauty can trick you, but a woman who respects the Lord should be praised. Give her the reward she has earned. So she should be praised in public for what she has done. Now one thing I am going to point out is it does say, Specifically, she prepares food for her family, and I'm just going to encourage all of you to let you know that I do not go home every night and cook a four-course meal for my family. There are many times it is Mr. Goodsense at my house, many times over, and preparing that is driving there to pick it up. So um, I'm going to just encourage you to know that this is not by any means saying that we have to be super women, and I'm going to steal Greg's stool so that I do not um, knock over the stand up here. But um, what do you hear when you, when you actually hear those passages? You hear the description of a woman who is humble. She's reverent. She respects the Lord, and the Lord respects her. She's faithful. She's obedient. She's loving. She's devoted. But most importantly, she's repentant. So when I was a little girl, which is obviously where my story began, I grew up in church. I I do not recall a time in my life when I did not go to church, when I did not attend church. And um, for many of you, that's not your story. 
it is mine. My dad was a deacon, my mom was the church secretary, and an Assembly of God church off North Oak. And um, I remember being baptized, walking the aisle and being baptized when I was still just a little girl, probably about six years old. But from, at that point in time, I just knew that I had some sort of calling in my life. I don't know why, I just did. And I was um, one of those kids, I got sent to the principal's office in the second grade because I argued with the teacher over where man came from. And, uh, and so, you know, my mom was always proud of me for different things like that. Principal was annoyed with me. Um, but I didn't care. Um, but because I was, I think, so, um, so bold in what I would say and what I believed, that that's the reason why I was very tormented very early on as a child. About the age of eight, I remember um, my uh, English teacher had asked us to write a poem, a freelance poem, and we were supposed to entitle it just called, That's Me. And from the time I was a small child, the one thing that I wanted more than anything in the world was to be a mom. That's all I wanted. I wanted to grow up and be a mom. And I prayed insistently every night um, that God would allow me to have a husband by the time I was 20, I would have three children by the time I was 30, and that's all I wanted. And so about this same time, I had sat down and I penned this poem, and it just simply goes, the wind it blows, it blows so free, it makes me wish that I could be a butterfly so bright and fair with not a worry, not a care, but someday I wish to be a mother with children who love her. That's how I see me. And I've always kept that poem and I've, I've kept it just scripted somewhere in one of my Bibles because that was my heart. Well, about that same time, my heart was completely taken away from me because I was, um, I had some, some innocence of a child stripped from me for about three years during that time frame that no child should have to go through by someone extremely close to me. And if you knew how close, you probably would be shocked. Someone I should have trusted. And I'm not going to go into, too lot, into a whole lot with some of this because out of respect for my children who are here, um, but I have come to a place of forgiveness with, those, with that individual. Um, my parents to this day don't know. So um, it's nothing that I've spoken of with my mom and dad because I know it would cause them more pain than grief. But I think the reason why I never spoke of it as a child is because one thing, when something like that happens to you, the first thing that you immediately feel is shame. It, whether it's your fault or not, it's shame. And then the second thing is just out of pure fear. And so through the course of this time, I remember feeling very conflicted because I would go to church and I couldn't understand why God would allow things like this to happen. It was very confusing. And I remember specifically on a Sunday night, because my mom had, a, she had just a way about her. You were in church when the doors were open no matter what. You could be on your deathbed and she would drag you out of bed and she would take you to church. And she'd say, this is the best place for you. So we were there Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Thursday, Thursday evenings, because for us it was Thursday evenings. And I was confused. Why would God, who loved me so much, let this happen. Well, I remember coming and finally hitting my knees on a particular Sunday night and crying out to him as an 11-year-old child and asking him to take it away. 
And it did. And life went on. But the confusion was already in place. And it made me vulnerable. It made me confused as to what love really is and what it should look like and what it needs to be and how to go after it. So by the time I was going into my teens, I was at a point where I was running towards boys instead of them running towards me. So I didn't know what it meant to actually have anybody pursue you. I was the pursuer. And through this pursuit, I was looking for love. I was looking for that unconditional love that I was longing so desperately for. And it caused so much confusion that my weight would have, it would just spike and go in different directions because I didn't know what it meant and how to feel loved. And so I thought you had to look a certain part, act a certain part, dress a certain part in order to get it. And it made me so, so vulnerable that at one point, um, one of these love interests that I had throughout my teens took another piece of me that I could never get back. So, here I am, living the part Sunday to Sunday, which I, call, I, I coined the phrase Sunday secrets because you live your life Monday through Saturday one way, and then on Sunday you go to church and everything's fine, and we shove it under the door because we don't want anybody to know really what's going on. And that's okay. That's how we survive. But God always knows. He always knows. And guess what? When things like this are going on, even though we don't see it today, he has a plan in it. And it can be turned around for his good. So during this course of time as a teen, my parents decided to uproot us and move us um, from where we lived and um, to relocate us to Dearborn, Missouri for a, a fresh new start. And I remember the real estate agent looked over and she saw this, this boy out in the front yard cleaning his car. Imagine that. And, um, and she said, look, look, there's a boy. What do you think of him, Stephanie? And I'm like, eh, I don't care. I don't want to move. Well, who knew that that boy would one day grow up to be my husband? So God knew how stupid I was and the stupid choices I was making, so he decided to land me purposely a dumb blonde right next to my husband. And, uh, so, and that's exactly how I pray to God most of the time. I'm like, you know I'm a stupid blonde, so you might as well just throw it right in my face. So anyway, moved next door to my husband, and I was 13 at the time, so that's a whole different story. And, uh, but we had grown in friendship, and we had grown to be very close um, throughout the years and then finally my senior year of high school he walked up to me kid you not this is how he asked me out this is the pursuit that I would get of course he walks up to me and he says hey uh, mom and dad have been in Branson all week I've not had anything really good to eat all week you want to go to the truck stop <laughs> that's our first date you got nowhere to go but up after that so <laughs> so there we go. We head off, and, and I convinced him to go to the homecoming dance with me. So we ended up staying through the night, staying up through the night, and um, until he had to go on shift at McDonald's here in Platte City. It was right after it opened, and he had the 3 a.m. shift. So um, we stayed up, and we talked through the night, and um, that was the, the beginning of 25 years together. And so as we, we had started this relationship, one thing that we had learned was as a 15-year-old, I had been diagnosed um, with something called endometriosis, which is a, a condition of the female organs that causes infertility. And um, so knowing that going into the relationship, 
we knew that having children probably was going to be very, very hard to do. And um, amazingly, as God can only do, he puts this in front of me. And I marry Jimmy at the age of 20, very consistent with my prayer as a young child. And um, so we, we start our marriage off, and I, instead of going to college, I never went to college um, and uh, never got a secondary degree. And instead, I decided to pursue music. So I was going to be a singer. I was going to go to Nashville. I was going to be a country music singer. I had sang at the Grand Ole Opry House and at the Ryman Auditorium. And that was my gig. That's where I was going. And he was going with me. And so as we were traveling back and forth the first six months of our marriage to Nashville, through that process, I was having doctor's appointments and trying to figure out what we needed to do to start this process. Um, because they had forewarned me I'd need to do it while I was still pretty young. And I'd had three different specialists tell me I wouldn't have children. And the next thing I know, I'm pregnant. And along comes Courtney. And I remember when I was, went in for my first appointment, the doctor looked at me and he goes, God had a different plan in mind, didn't he? I said, yeah, he did. So Courtney comes along and everything is great. We're just having the time of our lives being new parents. And through the course of this, something happens. A little bit of jealousy sets in with Jimmy being a dad, and all of a sudden he has to share his new wife with someone, this little one that needs me so much. And I'm not going to steal his thunder because he's going to give his testimony later on, but he, he comes to a point where he suffers from severe anxiety to the point that it's crippling, and we have to, if I turn the corner in Walmart and go in a separate aisle and he's not two feet behind me, we have to leave everything and leave because he can't take it. And so th through this anxiety, he becomes more volatile. And um, the emotional, the verbal abuse starts. And it was about the time Courtney was four years old. I remember he and I were into it. And she walked into our bedroom just as he was shoving me against the wall. And she looked at me in horror. And I knew at that time I had to do something different. So I called my mom and dad. Can I come home and bring Courtney with me? Yep. So I was going to pack my bags and leave. And I had pulled out my suitcase and I had it on the bed when he came home. And he looked at me. He said, no, please don't. Don't do this. I'll get help. I will. I promise. I'm going to get help. He did. And guess what? Two days later, found out I was expecting our second child. We had been trying to have a child for two years at that point. It had taken us two years, and here she comes. So along comes this other bundle of joy. And the pregnancy was so much different. With Courtney, I had gained 66 pounds. I mean, I, was, I looked like the hefty man. It was awful. I couldn't wear shoes. Nothing. With this pregnancy, it was beautiful. I had gained probably 40 pounds max, which was great for me. I was eating right, doing all the right things, exercising through the pregnancy. And then Courtney comes home from school one day, and she has a drawing, and it's only a, a five-year-old can draw something that looks you know, like a stick man like this does. And um, it's a picture of me with the baby inside of me, and the baby's crying. And I was very disturbed by the picture, and I asked her, what, what is this? And she said, 
she's hurt. I'm like, no, she's not hurt. She's in the best protected place possible. She's hurt. And so I just kind of, I was so disturbed by the picture, I threw it away. I was 37 weeks pregnant. And um, all of a sudden, Courtney comes running into our bedroom one night. And she says, Mommy, there's a man in my room. And of course, you know, you immediately jump out out of bed. You'd go run in the room. There's nobody there. You're a little freaked out by the whole event because she, she was pretty insistent there was somebody in her room. And so finally, I looked at her and I said, well, what did he look like? Well, he was dressed all in white and he had a flashlight on his face. Okay, so I'm immediately thinking some sort of angelic being has visited her in her dream or something. And she said, no, he sat on my bed and he talked to me. Oh, what did he say? He told me that my sister was going to be okay. Everything was going to be okay. I'm like, oh, that's wonderful. That's great. See, I told you, she's fine. She's fine. The next day, I'm driving to the doctor's office, and I'm, I'm just singing at the top of my lungs. I'm singing an old Travis Tritt song. Um, it's a great day to be alive. I, I remember it as plain as day, driving by the hospital. And I was thinking, I'm going to be there in two weeks. I'm going to be there. And I'm going to be done. And um, get to the doctor's office. And they come in and they can't detect her heartbeat. So then they start uh, bringing in different nurses, different Dopplers, and they can't find it. I start to panic. I realize what's going on at this point. And they're asking me, have you noticed any movement lately? I'm like, well, I know she's kind of settled down, but I just think it's because she's just getting into place and she's ready. And they bring in the doctor. The doctor kind of checks around. He's like, let's go to the sonogram room. So they take me back to the sonogram room, lay me on the bed, and at this point, I, I know what's going on. I'm very well aware. Fear starts to creep in. And that sonogram comes up, and there's this beautiful baby laying on the screen, sprawled out in frog style. No heartbeat. She's gone. See, that angel came to take her home. So th there was something that was wrong, and I just didn't know. So that started the journey of a battle of severe depression that lasted about four years. But through that depression, the very first thing that happened was I went home, and I was everything at the little church that I went to. I was the, the worship leader. I was the Bible school leader. I was a Sunday school teacher. I, I ran many different functions at the church. So my faith was strong, or so I thought. Within those first two weeks after coming home from the hospital, I remember Jimmy just crying out to me and telling me, he's like, I'm not strong enough to do this. I can't do this. You've always been the one in control. You've got to come back to me. I just looked at him. I said, I can't. I need you to. You're going to have to take the ropes this time. So... Throwing something like that on someone who suffers from anxiety is very difficult to do. 
but he did it and he did it well. But during those first couple of weeks I was home, I had people that would drive by my house and they would call my phone, I know you're home, why aren't you picking up? I know you're home. We need to talk about Bible school. You're missing the meetings. Very insensitive. Because when you lose a child, it's one thing. When you lose an adult child, it's another thing. When you lose a baby at the point of birth, well, you should be over it by now. We had people that would come up to us and they would say things to us um, that were very disheartening, very demeaning. Like, why, why did you cart your, your, your dead baby all around the place? We didn't. Jimmy and Courtney were allowed during this time um, after she was born. I actually got to have her with me for 24 hours. And um, so back up a little bit, but um, at the hospital, they were so good to me and so kind to me and so kind to our family that the same day that I lost her, April 27th, 2001, they had made the announcement of Precious Doe's disappearance. For any of you that remember Precious Doe, the little girl who was beheaded and they found her head in the weeds somewhere down in Kansas City. And I remember crying so hard for that mother because I knew where my baby was. But this mom was searching for her baby, or so I thought. And I'd learned many years later that it, she actually fell at the hands of her own mother and how heartbreaking that was when I found that out. But during this time, they had taken her down to the mortuary. They brought her back up the next morning by my orders at 5 a.m. so that I could hold her again before they took her to the funeral home. And they had microwaved her blanket to make it warm enough so that she would not be cold to my touch. And I held her, and I loved her. I looked on her. I dressed her, changed her. She was real. Eight pounds, 15 ounces, real. And Jimmy was allowed to take her from the hospital to the funeral home. So that's how some of these rumors start. It's really cruel what people can say. So sometimes it's best not to say anything at all. And so at this point, as I start my journey of depression, I'm just wanting someone to feel as horrible as I do. Someone to feel as bad as I do. So I want to ask you, to open up your Bibles again. And I'm going to show you another mother. See, this Bible right here is full of women. And you've probably heard of, of Esther. You've probably heard of, of course, Mary, Mary Magdalene. You've heard of Ruth, Naomi. You've probably heard of Eve. But how many of you have heard of Leah or Hannah? How many of you heard about the two prostitutes in King Solomon's court? So turn with me this morning to 1 Kings chapter 3, 
And we're going to start with verse 16. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 16. So one day two women who were prostitutes came to Solomon, and as they stood before him, one of the women said, My master, this woman and I live in the same house. I gave birth to a baby while she was there with me. And three days later, this woman also gave birth to a baby, and no one else was in the house with us. It was just the two of us. And one night, this woman rolled over on her baby, and he died. She took my son from my bed during the night while I was asleep, and she carried him to her bed. Then she put the dead baby in my bed. And the next morning, I got up to feed my baby, and I saw he was dead. When I looked at him more closely, I realized, this is not my son. No, the other woman cried. The living baby is my baby. The dead baby is yours. The first woman said, no, the dead baby is yours, and the living one is mine. So the two women argued before the king. And King Solomon said, one of you says, my son is alive, and yours is dead. Then the other one says, no, your son is dead. My son's alive. The king sent his servants to get a sword. They brought it to him, and he said, cut the living baby into two pieces and give each woman half. The real mother of the living child was full of love for her son. So she said to the king, please, please, my master, don't kill him. Give the baby to her. But the other woman said, neither of us will have him. Cut him into two pieces. And King Solomon said, don't kill him. Give the baby to the first woman because she is the real mother. When the people of Israel heard about this and about King Solomon's decision, they respected him very much. Saw he had much wisdom from God to make the right decisions. So in this story, what do you hear? We hear about King Solomon's wisdom, how wise he is. He's a great king. We hear about the love and the compassion for the mother of the real child. And then when we think about the other woman, what do you think about? Do you think about how cruel she must be? How horrible that she would be okay with cutting in two another child just because hers was dead. Well, I can tell you, I've gone there. I've gone to that pit of depression and destruction where you are so consumed with, with hurt and anger and bitterness that you want someone to feel as badly as you do no matter what the cost. And in those weeks after I lost her, I had put a sign up on my front door. It said, just leave your items on the step. Please do not ring the doorbell. And I sat in my house, in my nightgown, never getting dressed for weeks. Because I could not understand why God would allow this to happen. As faithful as I was, why? And better yet, my mind went somewhere that I, I can't even imagine it going today. I was at the point at the brink. I remember it was, it was raining outside. It was a very dark day. 
And I had decided I was taking my life that day. And then my compassion for my child that was still alive. Couldn't bear the thought of her not having her mother after losing her sister. Because, see, she kicked me in the shins and yelled at me and screamed at me for letting her sister die. The guilt that I was feeling already was bad enough. I couldn't do that to her. So I was going to take her with me. Your mind can go to a very dark place very soon. Especially for moms. Because it's so personal for us. The love we have for the children that we bear is so great that the hurt can be so unimaginable. The phone rang. Always God's timing. And it was one of the nurses from the hospital. Stephanie, are you okay? I'm all right. Are you sure? Something told me to call you. Now, something didn't tell her to call. God told her to call. He told her to intervene. And I knew it. I knew it very well. Because I felt his presence as soon as she said that. So as you've got your Bibles, turn over real quick to 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 4. We're going to start with verse 16. Another woman, another mother. Then Elijah said, and let me back up. This is the Shumanite woman. This woman has um, been a caretaker for the prophet Elijah. She's been boarding him, taking care of him and his servant. Gehazi for a while and Elijah's decided that he wants to do something for her so what's what's he what's he going to do well he asked her what can I do for you she says I've got everything I need no I don't need anything and then Gehazi he remembers oh she doesn't have any children they're kind of older and she doesn't have any children so surely she needs a son so then Elijah said at about this time next year you will hold a son in your arms and the woman said, no, master, man of God, please don't lie to me, to your servant. But the woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son that next year, just as Elijah had told her. The boy grew up and one day went out to his father, who was with the grain harvesters. And the, and the boy said to the father, my head, my head. The father said to his servant, take him to his mother. And the servant took him to his mother, and he lay on his mother's lap until noon, and then he died. So she took him up, and she laid him on Elijah's bed, and shut the door and left. She called to her husband, send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys, then I can go quickly to the man of God and return. And the, one, and the husband said, why do you want to go to him today? It isn't the new moon or the Sabbath day. Yeah, because that's exactly what I'd be thinking too, right? So, and she said, it will be all right. It will be all right. Then she saddled the donkey and said to the servant, lead on. Don't slow down unless I tell you. So she went up to Elijah, the man of God, at Mount Carmel. And when he saw her coming from afar, he said to his servant Gehazi, look, there's the Shumanite woman. Run and meet her and ask, are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is the boy all right? And she answered, everything's all right. 
During this time, after losing her, and after that phone call, and me saying everything's all right, oh, I pretended everything was all right. I was good at pretending it. And I masked my depression because I had heard from so many people, including my own husband, you should be over it by now. And we did seek counseling. We went to counseling, and, and we did support groups and, and that sort of thing. And it was very helpful. It was. But to mask what I was really going through, I was afraid to be a disappointment to anybody else. I was afraid to disappoint anyone. I didn't want to let anybody else down. I didn't want to hurt anybody anymore because I still felt it was my fault. So I started, when people would ask, can we go buy this, even if we didn't have the money? Sure. $40,000 in credit card debt later. I finally had to admit we weren't all right. And I went to my husband after God had met me and told me, you better come clean. My heart was heavy, and he was pulling at me and telling me, you, you confess and you repent, and I will be there with you. Trust me. Have I not brought you through so far to let go now? No. I spent many what I call date nights with the Lord on the couch at 2 a.m., after I bought this Bible, crying, pleading for help, for release, for forgiveness. He'd forgiven me. And then I asked him, I said, well, can you help along with the other one? Because I don't know that he's going to forgive me. You know, I'm kind of having to go with him and telling him his dream of a Corvette is kind of down the drain right now. And he did. And he opened up that conversation, and Jimmy looked at me, and he embraced me. Mind you, this is the same man we had had problems with before. With some abusive tendencies because of his anxieties. And instead of being anxious over there, he grabbed me and he said, I love you. I'm sorry, I didn't see it. I'm sorry. So we buckled down and God pulled us out. And because God was right there at that point in time, I decided I was going to be all in with God. I'm going to be faithful. I'm going all in. Because I knew then that he was real. He's really real. He's living, he's alive, and he's listening, and he's going to answer. And because of that, I better be faithful. And so the next several years leading up till today, this is how the story unfolds. God, God's provision and timing is so good. I told you earlier, I don't have a college degree. I don't have that extra level of education. But what I do have is a God of the impossible. And because I was faithful and obedient to him, he was faithful and obedient to me in return. And so one day when I'm sitting at my house trying to figure out how we're going to make all this happen, how we're going to pay all this off, my phone rings yet again, and it's Jimmy. And he says, guess what? God's got a, just a way of doing things. You, 
I've just gotten a phone call from this person that we both knew, and she said that if you want a job working where she works at Cerner, send your resume in within the next 30 minutes. I'm like, well, they, they won't hire me. He's like, send it in. I sent it in. And I went in and I beat out five other people for a management position down there, making $12,000 more a year than what I was making. That's God. There's no doubt about that. There's no other answer or explanation for that. And in the same time frame, during all this time, we had a third child. Mind you, I was not supposed to have any more children after our daughter Mackenzie was, was born. I was actually supposed to stop and have the procedure to stop. But God's good, and he brought along Haley. Haley Grace, meaning God's gift, about a year after, year and a half afterwards. And she brought a lot of joy back into our family. And she will tell you that too. She says, I'm the reason you have joy back in the house. So, yes, it annoys her sister very much. But that's, that's how God works and operates. So I don't know where you're at this morning. I really don't. But I would love to know your story. Because I'm going to tell you right now, the reason why you see me down here with my hands raised in worship, it's not to bring glory to myself. It's not to bring a show to myself. It's because I know a God who is so greater than all of our sin. I know a God who will take what is dead and make it alive again. I know him. I've heard him. I've seen him. You don't orchestrate all of this for nothing. And over this, the several years after that, our marriage did suffer because about 80, what is it, 85 to 95% of marriages after the death of a child end in divorce. Oh, we battled. Trust me, we battled. And Jimmy's going to share that at some point, what we went through. But we were on the brink of divorce many times for selfish, stupid reasons. But God can take that and he can still bring it and make it good and repair it and bring glory to himself. He can heal any marriage, no matter what you've gone through. He can heal any situation. I have been sexually, emotionally, physically, spiritually abused at one point or another in my life. And I'm here. And I'm here to tell you that God is good and that I am absolutely clean because of what he's done for me. I have no spots left. I am unashamed and I can say exactly what I shared with you this morning because I'm not ashamed of my past. Because I've been allowed to live it, to give it to you so that you know 
that your story is worth telling and God can redeem it. So I want you to do me a favor this morning. Would you please? Women, would you please stand for me? Women of all ages, stand. I want to pray over you. Men, will you please just reach out to them and pray over these women? Most precious Father, Lord Jesus, Lord, we love you this morning. We praise you. We thank you. God, we just ask that you just come alongside these women. No matter what their background is, no matter what their story is, no matter what story they will live out, that, God, you are in the midst of them and you surround them with other women. We are Titus to women where you have called us to come and mentor each other. You've called us to be supporters for each other, to teach the younger women how to do it. And God, I just ask that you surround these women this morning with other women who will be willing to sit and pray with them who will speak truth into them and who will love them exactly where they are. And we praise you for that this morning. Amen. You may be seated. My favorite scripture is Luke seven forty seven. For her many sins have been forgiven. Because that's exactly where we are this morning. Exactly where we are. We are forgiven. We are not, not blamed anymore.